Okay, tonight I just feel like there's going to be some technological glitches. Technical glitches. Technological glitches or technical glitches? Which one is right? Or are they both acceptable? But I do these podcasts on an old laptop. The old Toshiba Uno from 1994. Don't Google that. I made it up. There's never been a Toshiba Uno. But if there was a Toshiba Uno, I would probably have it and still be using it. That's not to say what I'm recording on is any more modern. This thing is a total piece of shit. It's the HP Hound Dog from 1984. The old HP Hound Dog. Hewlett Packard. You know, HP goes back to the 1950s in Silicon Valley. Did you know that? You know, we talk about Silicon Valley quite a bit like it's something new. It ain't new. You ever heard of Xerox? Am I acting like I just made a great point? Have you ever heard of Xerox? Yeah, that's Silicon Valley too. And that's way before this current boom of apps, apps, and software development. In no way did I think I would be talking about this, but we might as well go down that path. Silicon Valley, not even a real name of a town. Just a journalist coined the term Silicon Valley. And it all started because I think one of the first radio stations in America was in San Jose. And then it became a place for military technology during the war. And if you have military technology, that means you're going to bring in a lot of engineers and scientists, folks. And those engineers and scientists, they procreate with each other and they make more smart kids and more smart kids. And then you have more smart kids coming to go to Stanford University. And those smart kids procreate with other smart kids and their kids know how to use computers. And their kids know how to use computers. And their kids know how to use computers and create software. And they know words like bandwidth and buffering. And they have wet dreams about JavaScript. And then uh, you got Twitter. And then you got Apple and Facebook. This is not the real history of Silicon Valley, but I feel like I'm dancing around it a little bit. YouTube. You ever heard of that? Atari. Oh, yeah. So then Atari brings in the gamers. And now the gamers are breeding with each other. And they're creating kids that are creating more video games and better video games. And all these families, these smart families, they now live in Silicon Valley. And... It has become a breeding ground for intelligence and tech. I have no clue why we're talking about this. And I say like we're talking about this, like there's anybody else in the room right now. Nope, just me and an inner monologue being broadcasted all the way throughout the World Wide Web. It's episode 41. It's about to get good tonight, folks. I'm going to blow your mind out of the gates. Ready? Race does not exist. It doesn't. Race does not exist. It's a man-made creation. We're going to be talking about a lot of man-made creations tonight. Things that are senseless, yet they shape our societies. They're senseless. They're based in nothing, but they have shaped the way we're viewing this thing called Earth. There is currently a professor at ASU, a gender women's studies professor named Sally Kitch. All right. You remember this name, Sally Kitch, director of the Institute for Humanities Research at ASU. She's a historian. And she said, race? Nope, does not exist. It's not a biological category. She says some believe that groups of people who share physiological characteristics constitute races, but it's not true. It's just a system imposed by historical, cultural, and political processes. It's not true. So racism believing one race is better than another race, 
an actual psychological fucked up condition where you believe a race is better than another race. Of course, as we know, it's rooted in nothing because race does not exist. One has never been better than another. Now, certain societies have been more advanced than others, but that's a different conversation. And that has triggered a lot of feelings of superiority throughout history that certain races look at others and go, oh, they're not industrialized. They're not urbanized. Oh, they're so far beneath us. We must go help them. So historically speaking, the roots of racism tend to come with people feeling like they're better because they look around their society and they go, okay, we're a little more advanced and developed. And we look at some other natives, whether it's throughout Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, thinking, hmm, we should probably help them out, right? We should go push our religion into their face, push our economic structures into their face, push our forms of transportation into their face, push our theories of consumerism and commerce into their face. And once you do that, you are not respecting another culture's heritage. You're robbing them of that. It's getting heavy, okay? You better sit down for this one. You better take another sip of that Pinot for this one. We're going somewhere. We're going in a direction. I feel it. I feel it. We're on the precipice of making a big point. So for those people that are so proud of their race, so proud of their nationality, the sense of nationalism, you got to take it a step back, all right? You got to pump the brakes a little bit on that one. What are nations? What are nations? All of these boundaries you see on a globe or a map, man-made. These are just land masses. And this whole group think tribalism that has taken over the world causes people to identify with a certain group. Their ethnicity. This is my group. This is how we dress, how we speak, how we've been educated. And then there's territorial lines drawn all throughout these maps and globes. All man-made, usually from conflicts. Stronger countries invading weaker countries or defeating those countries and then redrawing boundaries. Boundaries are fluid. They're always going to be changing. And then we have all of these areas electing leaders or leaders that just take over by force. And a collection of government structures. Trial and error. Did it work? You could study all of the government structures in the history of the world. Ask yourselves, did it work? Weigh the pros, weigh the cons. Ooh, the list of cons is piling up. The answer is probably not. There's never been a society where everybody's like, yeah, this is good. We're all happy here. No, we create our own problems. Humans aren't happy unless we create more problems. I think I believe that. Even the people that claim they want bliss, they want calm, peaceful bliss. They would probably do something to screw that up so badly. So all of these government structures now exist throughout the world. And you have the haves and the have-nots. You have the wealthy, you have the poor, and you have these land masses fighting with other land masses, and their land masses have names and leaders and people who look a certain way and have a certain skin color. And some of these people think they're better than other people. Thus spawn the idea of racism. But if race doesn't exist, then guess what? It's all a fabricated concept that needs to be put in the toilet and flushed away. So in a very weird way, in a very weird way, I can at least explain the history of racism, but I cannot explain the history of gender inequality. And as a world history teacher, 
it is a lingering theme throughout every unit of study. You go back and you go back, the ancient Greeks and Romans, not considering women to be citizens. And then fast forward through all of these units we teach, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and on and on and on and on and on. Stifling women throughout history. It's a common theme. And we explore it. And when you explore and analyze something and discuss something, it creates stimulating conversations where everybody has a perspective and a viewpoint, but nobody really has an answer. You know, there are theories out there for virtually anything, and I know there's theories on gender inequality, but why? We're talking about females of all races. We're just talking about a gender at this point. We're talking about women. Where did it come from? Where all of a sudden, as societies were growing and growing and growing and growing, some women were viewed as less than. Which brings me to my point. Women could not even vote in the United States of America until... 1920. This is the election where Warren Harding defeats James Cox. I did my homework. You remember the old Harding and Cox presidential race. I could barely sleep some nights thinking about Harding and Cox. Cox and Harding. Harding Cox. Harding a Republican. Cox a Democrat. Harding wins and becomes the 29th president of the USA. USA and the 19th Amendment finally lets women vote. This is about a hundred years ago. Do you know how fucking recent that is? It's about a hundred years ago. So if Harding became the 29th president, then the first 28 presidents, we were just saying, hey, how did the fellows feel about these candidates? Could you imagine that in the last election? Well, the last election involved a female. But any election in my lifetime? Hey, how did the fellows feel about these candidates? Just curious. Hey, fellas. The idea of campaigns only targeting men because they're the only ones who could vote? How bizarre and backwards does this sound? And you think I'm telling stories from the 1500s? No. 1920, that feels like kind of close in my rearview mirror. And another thing. If a woman, up until the mid-30s, were to marry a foreigner, she would lose her citizenship. If a woman married a non-U.S. citizen, an American woman, she would just lose her citizenship Falls in love with the guy from China. Falls in love with the guy from France. Falls in love with the guy from Canada. Marries him. Eh, sorry, you're not an American anymore. Eh, sorry, ma'am. It's our screwed up laws. So this world we're currently living in is as good as it has ever been for women. And for young people to look back and study this, they're going to ask why. And teachers are going to say, yeah, I don't know, why? And historians are going to have theories, but the real answer is, not out there. Gender inequality. If you're listening right now, maybe you have a theory. You're thinking, well, the women would stay home and the hunters and gatherers would go find dinner. Okay, you're just telling me things. Well, women carried the babies and men, okay? None of this applies. If anything, like I've said, women should have been anointed as the stronger gender. Anybody who has ever seen labor knows this. But if you don't allow a person to vote, you're basically saying, yeah, we don't think you're smart enough to be a part of this process. Yeah, we don't think uh, the way you view leaders applies to this country. So you're not even really a citizen. And all the major strides that they have fought for, women throughout history, all the major strides have culminated into something that just feels normal. It just feels normal to have men and women 
with the same rights. Should be no pay gap, as we know. But also it's important to realize that even the people living back then, you know, I can't just attack everybody throughout the 1800s and early 1900s in America and say, oh, they were also sexist. No, there's always people in society who could see things clearly, but they're living at a time where the majority of people, the lawmakers, don't. Patton Oswalt, the comedian, he has a great bit about that. He goes, I'm embarrassed that I was alive at a time where same-sex marriage was illegal. Because, of course, he's right. In 50, 100 years, same-sex marriage is going to become so normal, just like African-Americans voting and women voting right now. It's just so normal. It's so weird when I brought up the example of, hey, uh, these two presidents, could you picture the next election? If it was just, hey, how do the guys feel about this? Women not being allowed to go to the polls on that Tuesday in November. You're not allowed. You're not allowed in. That sounds like sci-fi. So I'm born in 1981. All I know is women voting. I'm born in 1981. All I know is African-Americans having the right to vote as well. But just like Patton Oswalt said, I am alive before and after same-sex marriage becoming legal. And when it is studied in history books, people are going to go, wow, how did people allow that? And of course, I'm not a lawmaker, but I was a person in society witnessing the transition, which made it extra special. And there was some novelty to it. It didn't just immediately feel normal. It felt too good. You know, it's something to celebrate at first. And then when it becomes normal, that's when it's a real victory. At first, it has to feel a little extraordinary when a monumental law changes to include more people. So if we're going in that direction, then that's a sign that democracy is working. Yeah? What else do we need to fix in this country? Anything? No? We fixed it all? Good. All right, there's a giant percentage of conversations that I have and most people have that are just on the surface. And I guess they matter, but they really don't matter. I like that 1% or 2% of conversations that are so deep and heavy that they kind of blow your mind a little bit, and then you have to bounce back into something that doesn't really matter as much on the surface. So a lot of conversations lately that we have, my wife and I, it's about things around the house, space heaters, painting walls, trimming tree branches. When is the plumber coming? Is he coming today? When is the plumber coming? And when he comes, what is he doing again? What size area rug should we get? You know, topics like this. I guess they matter. They matter a little bit. But then all of a sudden, I like to shake it up sometimes. So over the weekend, we were having breakfast, and I asked my wife. This is how I trigger conversations, because she's well-read. And I mean a lot of different kinds of books. So I kind of tap into her mind, and I asked her, is this how humans should be living? What we're doing right now. Paved roads, driving our cars, using those resources, gasoline and oil, taking flights all around, industrialized, living in these homes, in these modern neighborhoods, urbanized, industrialized, listening to our podcasts, Googling shit all day, sending emails. Look what occupies our time. All these devices. I mean, how much technology do we need to be surrounded with? Watching our TVs, listening to our radios. You know, I'm just talking about the last two, three hundred years. Is this how humans should be living? All of the things we do that are not natural, just man-made inventions, creations that we now take part in, take photos of ourselves and videos of ourselves and post them and send them and text them. All of this, the way we're treating the world and participating in society. Is this how we should be living? Is this the natural path? 
because every single advancement, every single improvement has led us to this world that we are in right now. And let's just take a step back and ask ourselves, do we like this? Is this exactly what we like? All of the many things we're inundated with. I know this is almost too deep to even explore this question, but my wife's answer was simple. She went, no. I was like, really? A higher power. You could say God, you could say mother nature. Is this what they intended? And my wife just said, no, uh, no, we're kind of screwing the earth up. And there is some truth to that. What we've done to this planet, I guess there's scientific proof that we're fucking some shit up, huh? We're kind of messing it up a little bit, huh? We're always going to have wars. We're always going to have strife. We're always going to have homelessness and poverty. We're always going to have these ugly things. But that's not exactly what I was asking. I was just asking with all of the tech advancements and even in incorporating things that we don't even value anymore, like refrigeration and microwaves, running water, electricity, all these things, was this the natural path, how we humans were intended to progress to keep thinking and thinking and thinking. Hey, what's the next best thing? Hey, what's the next best thing? Like right now in Silicon Valley, all of the employees who show up to work right now at Google, Facebook, Apple, they don't just come in and go, I think we're good today. I've talked about this. They have to think and think and think. What's the next best thing? What's the next best thing? How are we going to keep earth going forward and forward and forward? How are we going to advance society? How are we going to think of things that keep it going and going and going and going? Why do we need it to keep going and going and going and going and going? Where are we going? I don't know. But is it better and better and better and better? Is it always just better and better and better and better and better? Don't we have to reflect for a moment? We only get so many minutes in life. How are we spending a lot of these minutes? Now, a lot of the things that we've got going on, from clothes, that's a man-made creation, language, different dialects, tons of different languages all over the planet. A lot of that sounds, okay, good, good. It's good that we have clothes and language. Education, okay, good. Still need to advance that in many areas. Entertainment, sure, it's advanced quite a bit. But if it has surged so far ahead and we're always going to be chasing the next best thing, even people who think that they're not techie, just to exist in society, there's a few social norms that you have to adhere to. You just do. And that's when you wonder, are we all on the natural path? If there's a higher power looking down on us, is this higher power going, yep, exactly. That's the plan. Way to go. You humans are doing it properly. And I realize there are still rural societies. I still realize there are people in developing countries right now who are not checking their emails throughout the day or sending out tweets. I get that. But this society I'm in right now, I'm living in right now, it is a little scary how minutes are just lost because screens are sucking in our consciousness. My attention can be in nature if I'm in nature, but then if that phone in my pocket buzzes and I'm on a hike, my attention goes to that phone. Why is the phone even in my pocket? I'm on a hike. The phone's going to be in my pocket for the rest of my life. I've had moments where I'm surrounded by so much technology, just electronics galore, that I felt claustrophobic. I almost felt a headache. I've had it where I had my cell phone next to a laptop, next to a baby monitor camera, next to a remote control, next to a TV. And it seemed like everything was on at once. Just everything was going on at once. Boom. Baby crying on the monitor, watching a documentary on TV, listening to a podcast. And I was like, what the fuck? What? So I need to do a little of that cold turkey. But it's not just me. I don't want to make this about how I'm experiencing this. I'm just thinking 
the natural path that we should be on. It's insane to think about what's going to be new and improved in 20 years. Guarantee it'll detach us even further. Guarantee I even Google things sometimes like how to use my phone less. And guess what? I'm on my phone Googling that. I try to meditate and be present. Guess how I meditate? I have an app on my phone that I tap and then I put this phone on my lap. The early Buddhists did not draw it up that way. But I'll go with the flow. All right, I'll stop harping on that for a moment. There's a lot of other things I got to talk about. There's a lot of other things swimming through this mind. For instance, there's a lot of footage of things now. Have you noticed? You watch a modern day documentary, any documentary. You watch a documentary in the last 10 years. There is so much footage from people's stories and memories. It's unreal. Everything is now caught on tape. Good documentaries. It's not just the storytellers. It's actually just showing you the footage. It's a lot of build up to the next footage. You go, wow, they were filming this. They were filming him at that age. They were filming her do that. It's almost like filmmakers are so ahead of the game that they know what to be filming. It's weird. Think about the last documentary you saw, modern documentary. Isn't it weird how much footage they have? Not just documentaries, but if I read a memoir, if I read anything that's a true story, I immediately go to YouTube and I type it in there and it's there. It's just there for me to watch. Like I read Steve Young's memoir, Steve Young, the former 49ers quarterback. He wrote a great book and I found myself constantly going to YouTube after every chapter and watching what he was describing. And I can't tell if it was enhancing the experience or not. Storytelling is good, you know, painting a picture with your words, but I think all it does is inspire people to just Google it and YouTube it and look it up and hope that there's footage. I bet there's some things I even talk about on this podcast where you go to YouTube or Google and you go, all right, what was he talking about? That's how I listen to podcasts. Pete Holmes talks about something. Joe Rogan talks about something. Even Joe Rogan watches the YouTube videos as he's doing the podcast. So he adds color to it. Bobby Lee, Mark Marin, a good storyteller. It's supposed to conjure up something in my mind but that's no longer good enough because there's so much fucking footage out there that I'm like addicted to going to YouTube and just looking at it. And is it always amazing? No. I remember reading Sarah Silverman's book, The Bedwetter. Really good book. But she kept telling so many awesome stories and I was like, wow, that happened on TV? That happened in your life? That happened on TV? That happened behind the scenes and everything I looked up was there. Right there for my consumption. And it's only going to increase. It's only going to increase. You take a young prodigy in anything right now, from gymnastics to figure skating, basketball to painting, video game world, anybody doing something extraordinary right now, anybody doing something remarkable right now, I guarantee there's enough footage of that person where in 20, 30 years, if there's a documentary made about their lives, it'll just all play out, all caught on tape. You won't even need storytellers. You just show the footage, which is weird because if you you know watch a documentary on someone like Socrates or Leonardo da Vinci, there's no footage. You simply rely on storytelling. And those documentaries can still be fantastic. Like Ken Burns, his documentaries about the early history of baseball. There's no footage of the true early, early history of baseball, but it is as compelling as a documentary from 20 years ago. I mean that. I mean that. When my voice gets high, does that mean I'm being honest? I mean that. Ken Burns' documentary on baseball from the late 1800s. It could be with the music. And some stills, you know, a photo, a powerful photo of Ty Cobb and someone telling a story about, oh, Ty, he used to sleep with a gun under his pillow. I saw Ty once beat the shit out of a man for looking at his beer. 
And you go, wow, these stories are good. I can't just go to YouTube and type in Ty Cobb beating the shit out of a man for looking at his beer. But if I could, I would. All right, speaking of documentaries, the Hip Hop Evolution documentary series on Netflix, it's way too good. The story of Too Short, early Too Short, I'm talking about 14-year-old Too Short, how he was able to rise up in Oakland, on the streets of Oakland, is fascinating. And I realized there is a profession out there where you don't need any training. You don't need any education. And at first, it doesn't matter if anybody takes you seriously or not. No marketing, no promotion. You could just label yourself a rapper. Rapper is a weird profession. Because there's plenty of people right now who consider themselves rappers, yet they're not famous. They're trying to be. They're constantly writing rhymes, releasing their music. No fame. But then there's Too Short, who labeled himself a rapper. How? He embroidered a hat that said Too Short, and he was riding the bus one day. This is the real story. And he sees another kid from his high school named Freddie B. And Freddie B was a rapper, too. How did Too Short know? He embroidered Freddie B on his hat. That's it. So they were writing rhymes, and I truly mean writing them, not typing them into their phones, but writing pen-to-paper rhymes. And they were writing about the society around them. Oakland, California, in the 80s, in the hood. And too short, he was creative. He liked to play make-believe. So if you listen to early too short, you think he is a pimp or a gangster. He's not. And he mentions that now that he's all grown up, older guy. He looks back on it and he laughs about it. He goes, yeah, no, I was kind of embodying what I saw. But too short was not an actual pimp. If you listen to his music, you'd think he was. You'd think he was highly affiliated with gang life. But he wasn't. He was truly a rapper. But he and Freddie B said, what if we personalize our rap tapes? Meaning we go up to the pimps and we actually walk up to the gangbangers and say, hey, I'll make a song with your name in it. And they did this so well. The production value was so good. It was high quality that the word got out. Hey, there's the little teens in Oakland. Too short, Todd Shaw and his friend Freddie B. And if you just tell them your name, something about your car, maybe personalize the song. You know, this is the earliest days of personalization. Nowadays, you know, people can personalize everything in their lives, but nothing like this to have Too Short, who was a no-name back then, who knew he would become a legend of the rap game, but just going up to pimps, gangbangers, and creating songs about them with his simple lyrics. That's what makes Too Short great. His simple lyrics about sex, about women, about life on the streets of Oakland. And then people start buying the tapes. And they start asking Too Short to perform live at their backyard parties. And then more people want the tapes. And now the cash is coming through. And now producers know the name Too Short. And yada, yada, yada. He is as famous as any Bay Area musician. I don't just want to say rapper. But if you think about the great Bay Area musicians of all time, from Huey Lewis to Green Day then, oh yeah, you got to put too short in that conversation. And actually, I'll give that documentary series credit, because even though there is a lot of footage, the storytelling is even better. The storytelling is what's gripping. Nostalgia, to me, is just powerful. Vintage anything, so much better than what's currently happening. But I guess most generations say that, and most generations feel that way. You know, the peak of when their interest was in pop culture, they'll probably view that as, eh, the best. Something happened two weeks ago, actually. Saturday Night Live had a host and a musical guest that I had truly never heard of. 
I've been watching Saturday Night Live every Saturday, or recording it nowadays, of course, but I have never missed an episode of Saturday Night Live since I first started watching in the early 90s. Haven't missed one. And I'm talking about every skit. I make it through. Even the worst, boring, unfunny skits. I make it through. I power through. But two weeks ago, was a woman named Claire Foy, never heard of her, with musical guest Anderson Pack. He was good. His first song, he was drumming and singing. I was like, who is this? Who is this? What planet am I on? I'm too busy watching Hip Hop Evolution just to see old stories of rap. I'm too busy watching ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries rather than watching current sports. I just want to see storytelling about when I was really into it. And Claire Foy, I actually still don't know who she is, but she was fine. Decent. Weekend update's always good. The skits are now awful again. But that's to be expected. They started strong. Think about this, though. The costume design is now so good. I just think, like, the people that work at Saturday Night Live in New York City and Manhattan, it's like Broadway quality. The set design, the lighting, you know, costume design, all these things that most people who watch the show don't even truly notice or care about because the caliber is now so consistent, it doesn't even stand out. But next time you watch Saturday Night Live, just look at the makeup, the wigs, you know, the production's so amazing. And sometimes you think... All of this is happening. It probably took, you know, four days to make this elaborate set. And the content of this skit is dumb as dog shit. It's like the least funny premise to a skit. And you realize there are probably 25, 30 people working just to make it look awesome. So Saturday Night Live looks better than ever. But God, it's not funny. I'm averaging 1.7 laughs per episode. LPE. What about you? How many LPE? Yeah, I got about uh, three. They're usually during weekend update. My pop culture knowledge, though. It's plummeting. It's bound to happen. It's plummeting. Except now, because I've seen two songs from Anderson Pack, I could tell some of my students, yeah, I'm into Anderson Pack. He's pretty good. A few weeks ago, I saw Travis Scott on Saturday Night Live. Now, I thought it was awful. But at least I can now tell some of my students, yeah, I saw Travis Scott. Gives me some cred. I got some cred. Final thing in this episode, and I don't really think we went in every direction I wanted to. I always like to evaluate during the podcast. How's this one been? A B minus? Yeah. Maybe a C plus? There were some rough spots for you? That's okay. Stay with me. Episode 42 is going to be a gem. But because we're still in episode 41, I noticed something. And this is just going to sound weird, but clapping? Why are we still doing this? Clapping. Clapping is one of the early things babies do. And when a baby starts to clap for the first time, slap their hands together. It's exciting to see. It's exciting. And then it causes the adults in the room to also clap. And now everybody is applauding for no reason. But it's fun. And that's clapping. And that's all clapping needs to be. But why is it when we go to a basketball game? On Saturday night, I was at the Cal San Diego State basketball game in Berkeley. Quiet crowd, by the way. Where's the spirit? My God, Haas Pavilion needs to wake up again. And I was just looking around the arena at one point. I was thinking, why? Why do we clap? Why do we show appreciation that way? We all look like a bunch of animals. Hey, they put a basketball through a hoop for two points. Let's clap. Hey, they put a basketball through a hoop for three points. Let's clap. Still love basketball. Okay, still still really like it. But you look at the crowd and you go, what are we doing? What's this motion? Why is that the way we show appreciation? And if you're asking me, well, what are the other options? You know, screaming. I guess we could scream, stomp our feet. 
These are things we have to do, though. We have to let the performers, and I know these are athletes, not performers, but in theater, the audience claps. Just agreed upon. This is what we do. We've learned it. I am interested in the origin of this motion. I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to feel dumb doing it. And maybe this comes from just watching my baby who instinctually just knew to start clapping. I think that's cool. That's fun to watch clapping. Yet we're still doing this forever. Sometimes it comes out naturally. Like if you have a giant laugh, I'll give a couple of claps in a giant laugh. Everybody has their own giant laugh. Some people like to sway. Some people like to drop their head. Think about someone you know or think about yourself. What's your style of a giant laugh? Are you quiet? Do you just go silent as your head shakes a little bit? Tears? Boogers? Do you cough? Do you cough every time you have a giant laugh? Stomach hurt? That's when I clap a little bit. That's when it's a visceral response. Just hands coming together. I don't know why I'm doing this. But when it's intentional, when we all intentionally clap together, I don't know. I don't even think I'm making a point anymore. I think I'm tired. I think it's time to say goodbye. Time to Sukunber. All right, that'll do it. Episode 41. It's been a hoot. You can follow me on Twitter, if you like, at jrosenberg957. Let's be friends forever. I love you. Episode 41 is in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>